Hello listeners, welcome to PX23 Today. My name is Jess Noonan and I'm joined by my colleague Peter Jewell. Thank you, Jess. Before we start, just a reminder to visit our website at www.planningexchange.org. Now that's exchange, not exchange, just for clarity. For details on past and future podcast guests. We're also now on iTunes and SoundCloud and there are instructions for both of these on our website. An extra special shout out to our wonderful sponsors, Maddox Lawyers. They're the lawyers to call when you need practical solutions to complex problems. Today, we're joined by the lovely Colleen Peterson from Ratio Consultants. Welcome, Colleen. Thank you, Jess. Thank you, Peter. Colleen, are you you able to give a a quick overview of your background experience and and ratio? Um, Yeah, well, um, like probably many of the listeners out there, I'm a town planner by trade, um, did the highly interesting degree of town planning and um, really moved into town planning as a cadet position with the Shire of Cranbourne back in 92. It was all just pre the Kennett government era um, amalgamations of councils. And I guess over the course of the last 25 years, I've moved out of public practice, both at Cranbourne and then into the city of Stonington, moved into private practice. And I've been at Ratio Consultants, I think, for about the last 14 years, um, and been managing director for the last, I think it's about two and a half years of those. And Colin, are you a Melbourne girl? Um, I grew up just outside of Melbourne in a, what was a little town called Gisborne, but it's now almost a dormitory suburb of Melbourne. On the land or in the, in the town? No, in the town, so, um, yeah. So no, so pony, is, no pony club? Well, I had the um, good fortune of my best friend in primary school lived out in Bullangarook, and so we were literally there every weekend. So um, I did actually learn to ride a pony <laughs> without all the hassle of the upkeep. <laughs> Do you still have family there as well? Yeah, my dad still lives up there, so, Amazing. yeah. Now, running back to our topic, what (laughs) urban trends are inspiring you at the moment? Yeah, it's a great question and I think for me it's really about how the way we live in our city has changed just in my lifetime and I think about, you know, the emphasis there was on the quarter acre block and the standard suburban home and that, you know, when I first moved to Melbourne in the early 1990s, um, I moved to Richmond, Richmond was a pretty run down, struggle town kind of a place still And really to see the inner city and obviously the central city as well really grow and develop and by good fortune, I guess, in a way to be able to have my life evolve along with that. And so now, 25 years later, I have the really great fortune of being able to live and work in the same suburb. I'm able to walk or ride my bike or take public transport to probably 95% of the things that make me happy and make my life um, go around. And for me, that's really fantastic because in another lifetime, I might have lived and grown up in the suburbs and had a far more car-based lifestyle. And I think certainly through that interaction that comes from living in the inner city, there's no doubt for me anyway, the sense of community and the roots that I have are far stronger for me, I think, rather than perhaps if I had have had a different sort of upbringing. And, you know, to me, that's just been a really great change in the way that our city has evolved and I think it's for the best. And what do you know now that you didn't know five years ago? Oh well certainly 10 years ago I had no idea about what it was like to be a working parent so Mm. um, my eldest child is eight years old and that's been a really big upswing for me to learn 
how to mix being a successful career person but also having a meaningful relationship and involvement in my children. So you're but, a very good multitasker. Um, yes, although I have <laughs> learnt over the years that your capacity to multitask successfully is really dependent on the mental space that those tasks actually involve. So yes, I can multitask, but generally low mentally challenging yes. sort of areas. Yeah. But certainly in terms of, you know, five years ago, I didn't appreciate perhaps the influence that someone like myself and my contemporaries can have in being able to make a difference and an influence in the planning process. And it, I think it was something that I never really appreciated until fairly recent times. Colin, you're very well known in the profession, but you gained greater prominence in by taking the lead uh, with a, a group of uh, professionals in opposing the new residential zones in Victoria. Um, what were your motivations and what were the consequences of that sticking your head up and, and ta- getting in, stuck into it? Yeah, it's funny in a way because it wasn't an issue that I ever really expected to get involved with and for the majority of my working life I've been a head down, bum up kind of a gal, just getting on, earning a living, um, forging ahead in my career. But there was just something that really struck at me several years ago when the Victorian state government decided to really lock down the well-resourced and infrastructure-rich central suburbs or middle suburbs of Melbourne to residential development. And I think, as I say, it really surprised me at the time, but the sense of injustice of locking away some of the prime parts of Melbourne for for residential development, recognising that as a city we need to share the responsibility for housing our future population, whether it's our children, whether it's um, migration, but that as an entire community we as Melburnians need to share that responsibility. And I felt that it was highly unfair for well-heeled, well-resourced residents that are the haves to really dictate to the have-nots that their opportunities for housing were really restricted. When you say well-heeled, a lot of the restrictive new zoning provisions have spread throughout. And so a place such as Dandenong, uh, they've got very restrictive residential zones within the suburban areas. So it's not a case of the rich keeping out. It's spread throughout. Well, it certainly started that way. So if you turn your mind back to 2013, the lead on the rollout of the residential zones was really being pushed by areas like the city of Burundara and the city of Bayside, and they obviously encapsulate some of the wealthiest areas of Melbourne. And I think what we've seen post that is other councils looking or other areas of Melbourne looking at those wealthy councils and saying, well, if they've asked for it, then we will as well. So for me, it's really been a knock-on effect from a state government really um, heeding the political um, desires of you know some of Melbourne's wealthiest residents. And, of course, the result of that is that property prices in that inner eastern and southern region have trebled the metropolitan average in terms of property prices and that's because the supply of detached and at smaller scale medium density housing in those areas has tightened and therefore property prices have risen and that to me just accentuates the inequity between established homeowners and obviously people trying to enter into the market and that can either be in the form of home ownership or in rental but the knock-on effect is reasonably the same for both the the, the cost of any sort of um, accommodation is increasing greater than it's ever done before. So this is obviously a fairly big commitment for ratio to um, to progress with this uh, discussion. And that's right. Is... And I think it's really important that 
while I was to some degree the face of that discussion, it was very much a company-led decision that the amount of time that I spent um, coordinating and organising the group contribution, which, Mm. um, as your listeners might be aware, involved about 40 different key professionals across the industry, there there, there was a massive time commitment for myself and also other support staff um, within the office. So I very much look at it as a company-led advocacy Mm. and one that, you know, I was really pleased because we did have some detractors and we did have some people concerned that um, our willingness to be outspoken and stand up on up on that issue would impact on our ability to, for example, influence state government in terms of client needs. Uh, are you mm. talking about payback, Colleen? Let's be brutally honest. If you stick your head up and criticise the government, it doesn't matter which political party it is, there's a big chance that there'll be payback or in some insidious way. Oh, no, and we were very mindful that there was the risk of that and um, I was asked to go into Matthew Guy's office and I did have a, a meeting with Matthew and... He tried. I should say he's the was the planning minister at the time that was really instigating those changes. Um, so we did sit down. We had a meeting, um, as most politicians do, did. He's very charming and very disarming. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, walked out of that meeting relatively resolved that we were on the right track and that I felt and you know the fellow directors at Ratio and our staff as well felt very strongly that. As planners and as people that we make a living out of shaping and moulding the urban form, that we equally had a responsibility to ensure that the way in which the city develops is appropriate and Mm. provides equal opportunities or better opportunities for all Melburnians, both present and for the future. So, yes, there was the risk of some payback. I've got to be honest, though, I don't think we did. Um, There were a few knockers and there were certainly quite a few people on social media that sort of had a bit of a go at me and that in itself was a whole learning experience Mm. that, you know, if you're prepared to speak out, there'll always be detractors. But on the whole, the feedback was very um, promising and even to this day, even though that was all sort of three, four years ago now, I still have people, you know, might come to me at industry events or the like and continue to thank us for the role that we we played. Mm. That's in that respect it's quite rewarding. It's lovely to know that people appreciate the energy. Was it hard seeing any of the negative comments on Twitter and all the social media outlets? Look, it was. And part of that is that I just had to learn to detach myself from that. Mm. And there was also a learning experience to me to learn how to modify and edit the commentary that I was making as well. So there's no doubt personally there was a learning experience to um, be critical in a particular way, play the man, sorry, play the ball, not the man, Mm. um, as an example. So, you know, certainly um, th- that was a big part of it. And it's really just – you just have to not respond. You don't get into a war with someone over Twitter. You're never going to win that war. No. Um, and you just have to remember that for every detractor there are probably ten people that are supporting you. So you think planning firms do have a social responsibility? I mean, Google's motto is do no evil. Yeah. Um, do, do you envisage a day when class action lawyers will go after planning firms or planning entities which promote discriminatory planning policies? Look, I'm not sure about whether or not you might end up in a sort of a litigious type environment, um, but certainly I personally and yeah, the other directors at Ratio, we did feel that we had a strong moral responsibility to speak up and make a contribution. I appreciate that that's not the case for all planning and planning firms in Victoria. 
Um, and I think it ultimately really boils down to the individuals in those companies having, you know, listening to their own internal voices and deciding what's really best for them. Mm. Do you think planners uh, are good at identifying their own ethics in that regard? Um, or do you think you sort of become a little bit numb towards some of these things sometimes? Well, I think as planners we should constantly be checking our values and what is important to us. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly when we're being asked to give opinions about planning schemes and we all know that there's a fair amount of subjectivity around the planning system and while I fully support a, a performance-based approach to planning, I think it is important to constantly be checking in and understanding, well, why are those provisions there? What are they trying to achieve? Colin, most planning policies seem to be restrictive rather than enlarging. Does that sort of entrench the status quo and those who have rather than those who are outside the tent? Do you think there should be a bit of a remix there? Well, I think that really goes to a fundamental overhaul of the planning system. And you're right that planning has been predicated for a long time on the restriction of development, and that probably goes right back to the original planning schemes back in the MMBW days in the 50s. Now, Colleen, you're a very impressive uh, female planner in the industry. (laughs) That's very kind of you. (laughs) Admired by many. Um, How did you, or have there been any barriers, I guess, in being a female in the industry over your time? Look, I wouldn't say barriers per se. I've been very fortunate in that, you know, my career has progressed in a way that, you know, looking back to a university graduate in the early 90s, I wouldn't ever envisage that I'd be where I am now. I think it's more that um, as I've my life, personal life has developed, and obviously being married and having children has been a big part of that. I've just been more aware of the challenges that come from having many pressures placed on you, both in and outside of work, and obviously mm-hmm. the challenges in trying to find the right balance. And obviously, um, you know, this idea that women can have it all is a very challenging and confronting. Um, issue to try and deal with. Um, for me personally, I'm just really trying to set an example, um, not only being a senior person now, and at 45 I officially call myself middle-aged, <laughs> so as a middle-aged person within the profession, um, to really try and lead by example and to show not just for women but other people around me that there is the potential to have genuine flexibility around your working arrangements mm-hmm. and that your career can still being meaningful, you can still be committed to your clients, you give 100% when you're off it, in the office, but that at five o'clock, that's time for me to go home and I'll exit the office. Do you look mm. at your emails after work? Yes. So Do you respond to clients after work hours? Yes. So <laughs> so you're showing me up, Peter. Well, what, what's this, we finish work at five rubbish? Yeah. I mean, is that, yeah. sorry, I shouldn't say rubbish. No, no, no. And but look, but and you that's, are guilty that, of the of things the that you were just talking about. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's part of the challenge and it's something that I've, continue to um, How do you stop? present myself How to... How do you not check your emails? How do you not respond to that client who wants you <sighs> on Saturday morning or well, no, 7 I, o'clock? I'm pretty good on the weekend, so it's more tends to be a midweek. Um, 
But I generally find that being able to spend half an hour, an hour responding to some emails in the evening once the kids are in bed really does then takes the pressure off me the next mm. day. And, I mean, a classic example will be um, I take eight weeks a year annual leave and I have to say it's something that I would recommend to everyone regardless. <laughs> employees everywhere are groaning, I'm sure. But I recommend that to everybody regardless of your personal circumstances. But the capacity to have a real and meaningful break, not just once but maybe twice a year, yeah. um, does masses for my own mental stability and peace of mind. But the price that you pay for that is that while you're on holidays, you're still checking in mm. um, for an hour or two each day. But mm. I'm happy to do that to know that I can then have, you know, genuine breaks elsewhere. Mm. And I think that's also not necessarily a female thing. Like, Pete, I'm sure you check emails. I love yeah. holidays. That's, right. that's not gender PM. specific. I did check the emails. I wasn't being critical of you. <laughs> I'm as guilty as that. No, as well. and I do realise that, you know, I talk about life-work balance. I work four days a week. I have eight weeks a year annual leave. Um but part of the price you pay for that is checking in yeah, out of exactly. hours. But I think on balance, I'm happy with that as mm. an outcome. It's certainly a goal that I've set myself for this year is to not let work intrude so much in a formal sense, so by meetings, legal conferences, board meetings, at both ends of the day. So that's a challenge I've got yeah. for this year. And you're obviously still achieving a lot anyway in that amount of time that you are. Yes, that's right. So. Uh, Colleen, uh, are cities becoming more inequitable and is this a bad thing? Now, we're just waiting for one planner to say, yes, it's a great thing. Well, not, yes, cities are becoming more inequitable and no, it's not a great thing. I just I can't imagine that any planner with an understanding about how cities works and the importance of land in the way in which our societies operate could imagine the concentration of wealth and opportunity in a small group can be to the advantage of our broader community. Okay. A follow-up question. Are our current planning policies increasing that inequity or bringing a divergence? Oh, no, it's absolutely increasing the inequity. There's really no doubt in my mind that, you know, using the residential zones again as, as an example, that placing significant tracts of, as I've said before, well-resourced, you know, great access to public infrastructure to include that land into the neighbourhood residential zone where, you know, as you know, the number of dwellings are restricted to two has had a massive impact in increasing wealth. We know property values in those municipalities have increased at far outstripping the, the metropolitan average. And areas, and it's just making harder for first homeowners to get into the market because the the strain on property prices there has then a flow-on effect throughout the entire metropolitan area. Well, who takes responsibility to fix what is described as a broken and cruel system with all this housing equality? It's not just housing equality; it's employment opportunities yep. and things like that. What you know, where is the Metropolitan Planning Authority? I mean, what are they doing about these things? Well. For me, it's really about leadership from both federal and state government, that these are issues that just don't affect Melbourne and Victoria. They mm. affect, let's be honest, all our major regional and capital cities in Australia, and that's obviously by virtue of the fact that the way our country is developed, we're a highly urbanised nation, it puts significant pressure on those urbanised areas, and it takes real leadership for both in terms of the implementation of infrastructure, perhaps at a federal level, but then, as you say, state government... Um, to look at planning policies themselves. And in my mind, there needs to be a significant rethinking about the approach. In Australia, one thing we are blessed with is abundance of land. You know, it's ridiculous. Mm. And land scarcity 
is one of the contributors to housing. And, that, and that's right. And, I mean, we have seen an increasing push by the state government in the last couple of years to continue to invest in regional centres. And I think, realistically, that has to be an increasing emphasis mm-hmm. and policy focus for the state government that metropolitan Melbourne can't take the full brunt of population pressures. But the real challenge there is obviously growth opportunities as well. And it's, it's vital that um, real genuine job opportunities are provided in regional and rural Victoria because it's the lure of employment that obviously leads to that brain drain from those outer-lighting areas. But most of the people who come to Australia don't want to go live in Wodonga. Uh, they want to live in Melbourne or Sydney. I mean, that's driving this massive growth, 100,000 new people in Melbourne each year. They don't want to go to Ballarat pretty much. That's but maybe, right. maybe they would, though, if the transport was a lot better. But the jobs, the why, why yeah. commute to Melbourne? You know, that, shouldn't the jobs be local? They don't have to be. Yeah. Well, it's about then government perhaps setting up a decentralisation policy. Oh, I think haven't we had that kind of failed? Well, let's see, the TAC moved to Geelong and mm. certainly from colleagues of mine that work for the TAC, despite the initial grumblings, that's actually worked quite well. Mm. You know, seeing strong regional government departments in major towns has got to have an impact. Definitely. Um, you know, there's obviously no magic solution, but the strengthening of those regional centres has to be seen as an important part of the, the housing story. Definitely. Productivity in the planning world, Colleen, it's fairly, it hasn't progressed a great deal, would you say? Well, I've got to say, what we do now is pretty much not that different to when I first started 25 years ago. So it's a really good observation, Peter. Um, if anything, probably the reports have got longer. Obviously, planning policies have got more complex. And the time that it must take, I certainly know from sort of my perspective as a planning consultant, but I can only imagine as well for the planning officers sitting, you know, on the other side of the counter, um, it really must be quite unwieldy. I saw a report the other day, I won't name the council, but it was 70 pages. Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? And The amount of time that would take to actually write is ridiculous. And I think part of that's the reflection of the incredible duplication Mm. that we find in the local planning policy framework. I know um, Stuart Morris, when he was um, president of VCAT, was quite critical about the complexity of local planning policies and the need to really condense and reduce it because... We know as working professionals there's so much duplication and reiteration Mm. that in some respect the meaning and the power of those words really get lost. And what role do you think research has in the planning system? Do you think we adequately utilise the research that's being done? I'm talking about, you know, the Grattan Institute, um, even, you know, RMIT, Melbourne Uni and the research coming out of those bodies. I think there's certainly some big gaps in research. Um, A lot of the research that I've come across, and I use a lot of research because I do a lot of um, socially based planning issues and I'm always looking to literature and research to better understand the issues at play. Um, But a lot of it is very esoteric, it's very conceptually based and for me as a practising planner I'm interested in planning research that is more fundamentally grounded in real world experiences and outcomes. And a a classic example would be I'd love for there to be a piece of research and and in saying this out loud I can just imagine an academic saying, okay, we'll go and do it. (laughs) But obviously community reaction to medium-density housing is a really important issue and, you know, people's 
perceptions and reaction to townhouses, for example, it's been a really strong political influence in the residential zoning situation that we're currently in. And what I think would be really valuable is to track a group of people that sort of pre a, a development, so you, you might pick them up at the advertising phase where they mm. first lodge their objections, it might go through VCAT, you obviously need to pick a few projects to, to monitor results, but let's say you, you pick a project where the development gets approved, the development gets built, and then you come back and survey those people again and it's ask It's almost them, like the architecture shows you see on TV, yeah? Yeah, or a longitudinal um, survey in a way to say, you know, take those same 10 people and interview them over what might be a five- or a seven-year period and mm. get them to really reflect on were the fears and concerns that they had in... The initial phases of the project, once the building has been constructed, yeah. the landscape settled in, and presumably they've got to know their neighbours and they've started to integrate and become of the com- part of the community, how do their perceptions change? Mm. And I think that there's some really valuable research it's that like needs to be up, done definitely. there. Seven Up series? That's exactly right, yeah. Peter. I just think that that's a massive gap and that obviously it's a, it's a piece of research that's a, a long time in the making. Mm. But I think that would be really powerful. Definitely. Do you think, though, as well, um, part of that is really poor community consultation? Oh, look, there's consultation no doubt practices? that there's a massive amount of work that can be done to improve the way that the community p- perceives and understands development. Mm. And that occurs not only at the planning permit application stage mm. and the way in which a lot of applications get lodged and we know through experience that a lot of developers are keen just to get straight to the tribunal... And that works well in some instances but can completely backfire in other instances. But I think it also relates to how both local government but also state government has engaged or not engaged the community Mm. on the reasons why urban consolidation is such an important issue. And I think the failure to really address that at a high level then has just filtered into this gathering snowstorm Mm. of political unrest. Yeah, yeah. What's sacred... What's planning sacred cows do you think will be overturned first? Well, I think and I really hope that we will see in the relatively near future changes to the residential zones, that um, the current state government got elected in part on the promise to review the zones and how they were implemented. Um, as you know, there was a advisory committee process last year that went over a period of months. I understand that report was written in July, so the mm. minister's been sitting on that for a number of months. I understand that the results of that will come out fairly shortly and I imagine that that will be wrapped up with the relaunch of Plan Melbourne. Mm. But I'm really... And maybe I'm naive, but I'm optimistic that we will start to see some changes. I think that with housing affordability being on the front page of the paper almost every day, that the government, and particularly a Labor government, where, let's be honest, their political heartland is not necessarily in some of the key areas Mm. where we saw that initial political agitation taking place, that I'm hoping that we do see a state government that's willing to bite the bullet and make some changes. Mm. And even if it's just as simple as amending the zone to perhaps remove the density restriction, I think Mm. that would be a really positive first step. Definitely. Um, just another quick question before we finish up. Um, is Melbourne's most livable city tag a curse? Do you think it breeds complacency? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Um, I just think that's a big PR mm. sort of stunt. Um, does being 
name the world's most livable city, it must be four or five out of the last six or seven years. Mm. Does that really make any difference to anyone that lives in Melbourne? Well, and the answer also, is no. It's also one of the world's most unaffordable cities. That's right. I think it's ranked in the top five mm. along with Sydney. And shouldn't affordability play a part in whether or not Well, that's right. And, and I think it's important to understand that my understanding is the purpose of that ranking is really to enable international companies to mm. determine repatriation repatriation, um, remuneration mm. for executives when they move them around the world. So when you think about what the study or um, survey is really showing has very little reference to the average Victorian. So, I mean, I, I do look at it with great interest when mm. it comes out every year and it's not surprising that Melbourne ranks highly when you think of the criteria about crime and safety yeah. and the like. Yes, we are a relatively safe um, city by international standards. But, you know, telling someone living um, in rental accommodation in Somerton, mm. that doesn't help them. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, Colleen, how do you refresh and relax? Oh, um, ironically, I like to relax by running, which is something that I've really only started in the last sort of four or five years. Um, most of your listeners may not be aware, but I broke myself quite badly about 20 years ago in a skydiving accident. Oh, wow. And I've not really been very mobile for a long time. And then just by a freak set of circumstances, I saw a podiatrist that put me in some orthotics and all of a sudden I can run a half marathon. Well, not all of a sudden, but I can now run a half marathon. <laughs> wow. And it's, it's been just the most liberating experience for me to be able to um, really change an aspect of my life so incredibly. Um, so I get a great sense of accomplishment in being able to do that because it's something that I never thought that I would be able to do. Yeah, and obviously amazing. exercise is just really great for stress release and um, resetting the mind. Wow. And I should say too, also like the odd glass of wine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Colleen. My pleasure. And And uh, I really appreciate being asked on. I'm an avid listener of the podcast, so (laughs) I'm absolutely thrilled to be on. So thanks, Colleen. Thanks, Jess.